Hi, I'm Jacqueline Freeman. And I'm Sarah Korn. You're listening to Kitchen Table Alchemy, living in full color. This is a podcast for people who see and spread the magical in everyday life. Hello and welcome. So um, today I have my dear friend Caden Sheffield with me. We used to work together over at MCC. We taught together. And um, so you taught for how many years? Uh 12 there. 12 there. But how many total did you teach? Uh, 29 total. 29 years total. Yeah. So uh, doing humanities, mythology, this kind of stuff. ESL, yep, yeah, all kinds yeah. of stuff. And now uh, retired, as retired as people like us get, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so still like connected with the Storytelling Institute, mm-hmm. and you do choir, and mm-hmm. you love music, and... So uh, just a little more time to do the fun stuff in life. So um, Caden is one of my favorite, favorite people in the world to talk to. And so we figured we had to get some of this recorded. And actually, I kind of wish that the microphone had been running for like (laughs) the last hour because you guys have missed out on some gold. But we tried to like take the string and follow it backwards so that we can sort of reproduce some of that. And the conversation started because um, sitting next to us here at the kitchen table, is a, a several skeins of hand spun yarn. Um, actually, let's put them in the middle so we can like play with them. Um, several skeins of hand spun yarn that I bought from one of my neighbors who is downsizing um, and moving into a schoolie, as they call them. So she's converting a school bus. Um, so we started talking about spinning as a um, as a feminine art form, basically. Um, and I really would love to learn how to spin. So I've been talking for a while about wanting to get a fiber group started. Um, and I would love to learn how to spin because I feel like it's such an archetypal activity. And spinning has so long been associated with the goddess and some of the, the, the most powerful life, death, life, goddess archetypes. Um, and I, I kind of feel like working with fabric, working with fiber, and and especially spinning, which is why I'd really love to learn, um, is like a way for us to reignite that divine feminine energy. Um, and so you are reading a book right now yeah. that looked so cool the last time you were over here that I had to go buy it myself. So. <laughs> Yeah, this is um, this is a book that I bought at the um, Association for the Study of Women in Mythology conference up in Las Vegas this spring, and it's called Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion from 700 to 1100, right? And it's by Max Dashu, and I haven't read the whole thing, I will confess, because I've been poring over it, and each page, I it blows my mind, and I have to think of things. I have to just pause and ponder things. <laughs> just chew and yeah. digest for a little while. But yeah. by total coincidence, the same time you were getting into fiber and actually purchasing skeins of yarn and stuff, I was reading the part of the book that was talking about women and spinning, and spinning as associated with the divine plan because everything comes around goes around and yet you draw from it a line that seems to be you know linear that goes through life and goes through through everyone's life and i was reading this section 
where uh, the author says the witch in nature of needle cases seems to grow out of its association with spinning and how often in medieval archaeological digs they find women buried with their needle cases. This was a real important thing and that inside the needle cases along with sewing implements and thread are often herbs that have divine significance and they believe that um, a lot of the the gathering together for sewing and needlepoint and spinning and everything often had other side meanings or maybe those were their primary meanings of divination mm. and communing and that um, I think that it is something I was sort of coming to this idea of maybe we should be making these needle cases again they show kind of the different ways they were made and what was inside them they're kind of like another way of carrying your amulets and putting inside mm. what's important to you so we were kind of coming at spinning from two different yeah places at the so same it ends time. up kind of being like a medicine pouch really very much so yeah if we think about it that way mm -hmm. right because it would go with you everywhere and um, and you know, I so I taught myself how to do just a simple crochet stitch to mm -hmm. to stop smoking several years ago um, when I was living in the Netherlands, and it was nice to have a lap full of wool all the time. Um, and then I moved to Phoenix, and I didn't want to be anywhere near wool. Um, and now, like, I actually get cold in the winter again. So for a few winters, it's been like, oh yeah, I need to start. I need someone to show me how to knit. I don't know how to knit. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been sort of yearning for this and longing for it for for a little while now but um I just totally lost the thread where was I going I lost the thread that's funny <laughs> but um, yeah we'll be here all week don't forget yeah. to tip your waitresses um, so. <laughs> well I think we were, we were kind of talking about spinning as part of like um feminine goddess uh art forms and I think the whole idea of a group. I was watching. Mm. I was watching a documentary on TV uh, the other night about Nepal, and these women were sitting there with those very simple disc and spindle distaffs, um, and they were just kind of, you know, as they spoke to the interviewer and stuff, and and uh, how calming it seemed, and how I had spoken to some spinners and weavers here in the valley who. Uh, said that they feel it as a meditation. They say the speed of it is kind of hypnotic and that you often do do it in a group. I don't know if that's traditional or not. Uh, and they said there's kind of an energy that sort of comes out of it. People start mm. sort of moving together and then they breathe together and then it all wow. kind of, yeah. And that they often feel energized by it, you know. And I thought, well, that's true if you do it as a, maybe as a recreation. I'm sure if you had to spin everything for everything you needed to wear, it would maybe get a little different feel from you. But uh, it certainly Although does it'd feel probably be nicer way. than like I don't know, cutting hay, for example. Well, it might at least be. you're sitting down by the yes, fire or yes, <laughs> yes, shoveling out stalls or something. I would rather be spinning myself. Maybe that's a bumper sticker. I'd rather right. Be I'd rather be spinning. <laughs> Let's get it out there. People yeah, would think you meant the exercise spinning, though. You'd have to qualify that. Have a little distop next to it. Yeah, the lady that I bought it from, um, she she said in the little, you know, ad in the neighborhood group was like, Play, it's a problem, right? Like, mm -hmm. I ha I, I'm downsizing and I need to get rid of this. It's, you know, it's really, and there are, there's silks and mohair and, there's beautiful. beautiful fibers here. Gorgeous colors. Um, I got this whole stack for like 50 bucks. <laughs> so, um, but she said the same thing, that it was a very, 
meditative like zen experience for her and her partner had also said like are you sure you want to get rid of all i mean you got some really nice stuff in there and she was like dude i will have i will have this much more this much and more spun before we know it like the bin that she'd already allocated for this stuff is already stacked to the gills so um so that's what she was saying too but she didn't talk about doing it in group so now with you saying that they start breathing it almost it makes me think a little bit of um the stuff that i love about chanting mm. right when you're doing like a, a dicker practice i used to do dicker which is like the sufi chanting right mm-hmm. um because you do get into this rhythm and you're breathing together and it it like opens this doorway yeah it's really a beautiful experience yeah I think there's an energy in in groups that work together. My my husband used to do transcendental meditation many years ago, and said that the group meditations were always more powerful mm. than when he was alone. That there is some kind of energy that's happening. That we share. It gets magnified when the people are together. It seems to. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, every group meditation I've ever been to, the leader talked incessantly, and it just made me want to hit people. Oh, oh, oh wow that's and then i'm like good. tripping myself out because like well you really do need to meditate look how angry you are <laughs> and i was like oh my god just shut up i, I can't yes. no yeah. well we're uncomfortable as a culture with silence i mean i i sit for 30 minutes every morning mm-hmm. so and i wanted to be in a group right like to have that sort of extra amplification or whatever and I, this was when I was living in Mesa, and there was, um, there was a, a, I found out that there was a, a Buddhist meeting room not very far from me, oh. and so I got so excited and went to the, you know, like the Sunday night meditation or whatever it was, and the, there wasn't three minutes that that guy didn't say something. Oh man, he didn't go three minutes of silence, and I think he was doing it supposedly to like guide through the people that were just starting or something and mm. he's like oh it's just trying to be helpful for the beginners and i was like okay whatever yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that wouldn't kind of do it for me either yeah no it really yeah. it was really um it was really disturbing but so yeah so i've been wanting to do a fiber group so need to get your input later about what whether you'd come out for that and oh, what what yeah. night of the week would work for you yeah maybe ha- we can teach each other like work together to learn how to spin well there's a lady here in the neighborhood that knows how to spin oh. um and the other the lady i bought this from she said she's leaving in september so that's got now i've got a Ooh. due date yep, yep yep right we need to meet before september so she can teach us too but then i found out that the lady here in the neighborhood also spins so she spends in cards and the whole thing. So mm-hmm. um, so if we can get started with it, then the lady here in the neighborhood can can help us do more. Um, yeah, I'm excited. And um, and I know that she's been hoping for a long time because whenever I talk to people about it, like they had they had a really cool um, ancient technologies day at the Pueblo Grande Museum. Ooh. They do some pretty cool stuff out there. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of ladies that were spinning, right? And also with yeah. the really simple distaff. And um, so there were ladies that were spinning. There were ladies that were making lace. Mm-hmm. Um, they There were all kinds of cool things there. It was really awesome. So um, uh, the ladies I was talking to there, whenever I've talked to people about wanting to learn, they're like, oh, well, there's a guild and they meet regularly. And I'm like, oh, how awesome. And 
I'm like, now I know, like, is it the one that's in downtown Mesa? Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know about that one, but it's mm-hmm. really, really far away from me. Not so far away from you. Not but so far away. Yeah, it's close. Not so far away from you. But, um, but hearing that makes me that much more excited about getting a group together. So if you're listening mm-hmm. and you're a Fiber fan, then um, get in touch with us because maybe we can start doing some Fiber stuff together. Um, what else did we talk about on the oh, spinning stuff? Gosh, well, let's see. Well, I talked about, yeah, I talked about the women who said that they, they really started moving together spiritually, mm. you know, which was really cool. I don't know. I mean, what's coming to my mind now, and I, I don't think we spoke about it before, but was the three fates, the Greek three fates and how they spun, one of them spun out your life and the other measured it and the other cut it. And how ancient that is, and how far yeah. back that goes, um, and how it goes to the idea of a cyclical version of time or vision yes. of time, uh, coupled with a linear one—the thread coming out of the distaff, you know. Right. Um, and that I think we—I think we went from there to this idea of sort of control, the idea mm. of of thinking about when you do something like a craft, and it's particularly maybe this kind of a craft you're kind of in a mix of control and non-control yeah. because if you if you're too tense even in crocheting you know this your stitches come out tight and if you're too varied the stitches are varied and it, it's not really beautiful work there has to be a sense of regularity yeah and yeah. i think that that your art form and, and not limited to fiber art by any means but i think often in doing an art form it's all it's a feedback of who you are where you are at that moment whether something is coming easily or whether it's coming tight or too loose or erratically um and it's also i think everything carries a spiritual teaching if you look at it for that yeah absolutely and i think this might be a good way to look at that 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 this fiber art because after you spin your individual thread of your life you weave it together with others to make something yeah you know yeah. And then if you're going to stitch it into an enduring piece to wear, there have to be certain cuts and breaks. Mm-hmm. And then you have to sew. You know, so I think each of those things could be looked at as some type of a spiritual component to making a life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the as you're talking about that, it's reminding me of the, the the type of weaving. What was the tool that you have? Oh yeah, the kumihimo. That's I've been doing kumihimo, which is something uh, from Japan, as it sounds like. It's a right now. I don't know what kind of disc they use. Right now, it's made out of foam, and it's got about 36 little slits around it and a hole in the middle. And you tie a bunch of fibers together and pull them through the hole, and then you basically weave a cord. And there's all different patterns, all different ways to weave these cords. Uh, and you can put beads on the cords as you do it. And, and so you can make rope bead necklaces. And I've been making belts and I've been making like um, bolo ties and things like that. Uh, it's again, it's repetitive. And it's something that is easy enough to do with one part of your mind that you can carry on a conversation. So it's a group activity if you want it to be. Um, so I think all over the world, people have discovered there's this certain sweet spot of maybe motor activity that you can do and then devote another part of your mind to something else. And it kind of is synergistic. Yeah. You and know? it's interesting, too, because um, uh, 
Bree Saucy, my teacher, talks a lot about cultivating calmness mm. as opposed to this idea that people have. They think, oh, well, I don't have, I live with four kids and two dogs. Like, I, I don't have 15 minutes of silence to sit on a meditation cushion. And um, and she talks about how, like, if you look at story t- it's, it fairy tales, so often the spiritual helper comes when the heroine is involved in some daily repetitive task. Oh, how interesting. They're not sitting on toadstools meditating, right? That's the mm-hmm. caterpillar in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Like, you know, they're they're not sitting on a toadstool meditating. They're they're doing the wash or they're 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 sweeping the floors or they're spinning or they're right? Mm-hmm. Like how many stories happen at the spinning wheel? Right. 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 Or I'm so, thinking of Cinderella scrubbing the floors when the fairy godmother shows up. Yeah. yeah. So there's this there are these repetitive they are these repetitive tasks. Um and there's a there's a reason I think that Buddhist monasteries have like daily chores is such a huge part of the spiritual practice. I think all monasteries do, partly yeah. because it's necessary. Right. But I think they organize it so that it's mindful too. Yeah, yeah. It is a meditative practice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um and that I know it was part of the way that I that I walked myself through that last really horrible depression that I had in Holland um, because, you know, I had always um, I would make sure that people came to see me at least once a week so that I would get my house clean. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And when they came, then I would feed them. So then I would always make extra. So then I would have food in the refrigerator. And I had been sinking in this depression for quite a while. So no one had come to see me. Mm. And um, my house was absolutely disgusting pigsty. <laughs> it was really depressing. And, um, you know, like, I remember at one point, I think literally every dish in my kitchen was on the kitchen counter. I did not have any clean dishes to eat with anymore. Um, and was just eating really crappy food, if any at all. I mean. By the end of it, I wasn't eating at all, right? I had like a month and a half that I only ate rice and onions because someone had brought me a huge bag of rice and a huge bag of onions. So for breakfast, I had rice with cinnamon. For lunch, I had regular rice. And then dinner was special because I had onions. Um, (laughs) Wow. um, But it... um, One of the ways that I started pulling myself out of that was to assign a a meaning to each part of the house, right? Mm. So once I started looking at the kitchen as the heart of the house, right? Mm-hmm. Then suddenly dishes in the kitchen have a very different meaning. Right? Yes. So then it was like, oh, I'm neglecting my heart. I haven't been taking care of my heart. Mm-hmm. And so it would motivate me to get in. It took it took friends to help me get rid of the dishes that were in there. Mm-hmm. But once they were done, because I had this awareness before it happened, and then, um, but once it was done, then it became motivating, right? When I saw that there were dishes sitting behind, it's like, okay, I need to take care of my heart. And with that intention, what I started seeing was that when I was working to clean the kitchen, then on some subconscious level, right, something was working around in my heart. So by the time I got done with the dishes and the kitchen was clean, something had cleared. I could I could feel that something had cleared. Wow, it was re- it was really it was it's it's a practice that I still use to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
um, because I made these little deals with myself and I call it intentional self-care. And -hmm. I've talked about it sometimes on the show before, but that like assigning meaning to each of the rooms Mm -hmm. and how that relegates to myself. Right. And then that way, when you're when you're working on that part of the house. Right then that work is being done within you. So like floors are obviously the foundation, mm-hmm. right? So am I, am I keeping my foundation free of dust and clutter? Like how's my foundation doing, wow. right? So suddenly it begins to really shift how we think about traditional woman's work as mm-hmm. well, right? Yes. Instead of like, oh, I've got better things to do than clean my floors. Mm-hmm. Like, well, if your foundation's not in a good spot, <laughs> yeah. what, is that stuff going to work out? You know what I mean? So um, um, it, it was a really, really powerful practice for me and did it for me. And then I started doing it for other people. And it was really amazing to see the shift that would happen once we, and, you know, I would work with them to do like one or two rooms um, and find out what that meant. For me, the kitchen was the heart of the house, but for other mm-hmm. people, it was something different, right? Sure, so, yeah. um, but once we found the sort of key places, then once you get that done, then the rest of, you know, then the, the energy starts circulating again. Wow. And I then love you're in- this. inspired to start moving in other places in the house and get that stuff cleaned up yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really cool. And so it, it does fit into what we see happening in fairy tales over and over again. Absolutely. That if we're doing those um, those repetitive daily tasks, that's when the inspiration comes in because the monkey mind is busy, mm-hmm. right? Like the monkey mind has got this little thing to fiddle with. Uh-huh, yes, <laughs> yep. Kind of like spinning. You can do that with one part of you and then you, the other part seems more clear to, to think of, you know, yeah. think with think with yeah. yeah 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 exactly oh my gosh that is that's phenomenal well maybe that explains why your house always feels so wonderful to be in <laughs> <laughs> it really and, is people i'm here i'm really lucky i'm here <laughs> well and it's one of those things that um because i saw too like getting up every morning and making my bed mm-hmm. right and uh if you've ever been in a horrible depression that is a huge accomplishment i yes. mean when you get to the place where you can get out of the bed make up the bed and put on actual clothes like wow you know Mm -hmm. um and it's something that i still do every morning i get up and make my bed and it was this message that i sent to myself that that part of the day is finished now right if i want to take a nap i can do it on a couch or in another like i'll sleep in the on a uh, on a bed in the guest room sometimes um but i don't take naps on my like that's Mm -hmm. sleep you know it's done and um so it, it sent this message to my deepest self that I was worth taking care of, Yeah. right? Because I was only cleaning for other people, actually. Mm-hmm. I would only clean when people were coming over. And so to make up my bed when no one's going to see my bedroom but me was like, okay, this put, this the sleeping part of the day is done now, and you're worth having a pretty bed, mm-hmm. right? And it also starts, I like, I'm Southern, so I have a gajillion pillows. Yeah. <laughs> um, and my engineer partner does not understand, but he complies. And um, like lots of partners everywhere, I'm sure, like, mm-hmm. why do we need all these pillows? We only use two of them. Like there's this mountain next to the bed. <laughs> but it's like every day starts with this act of creation, right? I've made something pretty because mm-hmm. it is really pretty. And when I walk into the room, I'm like, oh, it makes me happy. Um, and then before I go to bed at night, I take a few minutes to just kind of pick things up, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that depression, right, it pulls you, strips you down to your bones. Yeah, yeah. And 
was so aware of where my energy levels were, right? Mm -hmm. When we're doing okay, we're not maybe really aware. We'll get to the end of the day and not really understand why we're tired. Mm. But in that place of if you're if you've got if you're struggling with illness or if you've got depression, like you're so aware of what saps your energy, right? So I yeah. started noticing like I would start to gain a little bit of energy at night while I slept, especially once I got to the place that I would make up my bed and get dressed before I came downstairs. Um, so I'd be feeling like, okay, this is all right. You know, I, I'm not like wanting to cry as soon as my eyes are open, um, but would come downstairs and open the door to the living room and then see all this clutter and mess. And I could feel all the energy I'd gathered overnight, just drain out of me Mm -hmm. immediately. Um, and so I realized it was like yesterday's problems were still hanging around mm-hmm. and seeing them like wiped away this hope of a new day kind of thing. It's exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. That crap from yesterday is still here. It's like my, my aunt all her life. And I finally learned to do it from her. I mean, I didn't for a long time, but before she went to bed, she not only like cleaned up the, the breakfast nook and everything, but she set the table for breakfast and I realized one time when I was on vacation, like one of the things that makes you feel so good on vacation is you don't have to do any of that. You come down to like the dining area and there's the table set. And it's kind of like valuing yourself enough to make your own life of living vacation. You come down and even though you've done it yourself. Yeah, but you forgot because it was last night. You come down and it's almost like somebody said, welcome, I'm glad you're here. Oh, I love yeah. yeah, so I started doing that, and that makes a huge difference to me. And I think it's on both ends, now that I've done it for a while, um, feeling that I, I muster enough energy at the end of my day, whenever that happens, to actually care for myself. So I'm actually taking myself to bed, having cared for myself in the morrow, mm. you know, saying there will be a future, the sun will rise and it will be a better day. It will be good no matter what's happened during the day. And if it's a good day, then it, again, it's an act of mindfulness of saying, this is what I intend. It's setting an intention overnight. And then you come down the next morning and you welcome yourself to your new day. I love that. You know? And I love that, like living like you're on vacation. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. And having it be part of that like daily maintenance kind of stuff. Because yeah. I, I think it's it's one of, did we talk about this at the last moon phase? Like um it's one of the things I've realized that patriarchy has really sort of shortchanged us, right? Because there's this very like one and done kind of mentality and we really devalue maintenance. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't want to do it. We think repetitive tasks that's automatically seen as something that's very like lowbrow you pay other people to do that if you have the money like you know but so much of daily life and certainly spiritual like spiritual awareness comes from these these moments of sort of daily maintenance Mm -hmm. right and how many so how many social woes and physical woes and spiritual woes are are healed when we're when we're committed to that kind of maintenance and how many horrible things have we done trying to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of get to a point where you kind of wonder what, what's the chicken and what's the egg. Mm. I mean, were the, were the repetitive tasks seen as lesser in value and therefore assigned to women by force or by custom or whatever, or was it because women were doing those tasks, they were devalued? You know, 
and you kind of think, hmm, it's true, because I mean, everybody has to do them, and men in the army or men living alone have to do those same tasks, and yet we never talk about that. And the men themselves don't talk about it. And I think if oh, they I did, talked they... about it. I used to rail my first husband oh, about it all the time. Well, I, I was think, like, oh, you yeah. were in the Marines, dude. I know you know how to clean a toilet. You get back in there and do that. <laughs> yes, I think within, within the confines of marriage, it is spoken a lot. <laughs> but I mean on the, the larger discourse. Right. <laughs> and when men do do it, it's not called cooking dinner. It's like, oh, he's a weekend chef. Right, right. You know, right, we give right, other right. names to it, you know, for Very that. True. So I'm sure if we have a fiber group, you know, women will be like, oh, it's like a coffee clutch and they're spinning, you know. If we get one guy in the group, it's like they're exploring fiber. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like, in all seriousness, like, I wonder though if it's a, because women were doing it became devalued or was it at the space where. As a society, we went from valuing the unmeasured and unseen and the spiritual aspects of things and and thus devaluing everything that was attached to women. That's a good question. Right? Yeah. Because it it um I've there's been a couple times during our conversation that I thought about some uh insights I was led to on the story of Cain and Abel, however mm-hmm. many years ago. It's been a couple of decades now, I guess. But um I was so I was raised conservative fundamentalist Southern Baptist um, and um, of course taught all the baggage and gender crap that came with that. Yeah, absolutely. And through my own relationship with the Christian texts, because um, I went through this period where, well, I was, you know, being a conservative fundamentalist Southern Baptist will make an atheist out of anybody. And I was for a <laughs> while. And, and then I ended up kind of coming back around. Mm-hmm. And when I did... Then I had this thing where I, I only read the red letters. I don't know if this exists outside of the South, mm-hmm. but... Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I've seen the red letters. Yeah. yeah. So the, the words of Jesus are yes. in red letters. And I and I realized, that, like, the overwhelming majority of the New Testament was not red letter. <laughs> and it was kind of like, that's kind of weird. Like, we spent a lot of time talking about these people's opinions who weren't him. Mm-hmm. Like, what did he have to say about it, right? So just reading those red letters gave me this radically different view of what I'd been taught. And, like, the story of Mary and Martha really came to light and then, you know, found out more stuff about Mary Magdalene. And so I realized he was actually very pro-woman and, right, like the woman that was was brought to be stoned, the Mm -hmm. adulteress. Like, there were all these stories. Um, So however many decades or years later, who knows anymore, um, was having the sort of like wrestling with God about, okay, women are the portals to life on the planet. So obviously you don't hold them in this low esteem that mm-hmm. the church people do. So what's the deal? Like how come all the books are aimed at the men? How come, you know? And um, so I was led to the story of Cain and Abel. And I read it and I didn't get it. And it's like, read it again. So I read it and I didn't get it. Read it again. I, we, I did that a lot. And so, <laughs> and, or I'd see things that made me really mad. I was like, read it again. Um, but for the Cain and Abel, I got there relatively quickly. And one of the things that I noticed in the Cain and Abel story was that um, Abel's job as a shepherd was very much like women's work, right? Mm-hmm. It's caretaking. Mm-hmm. So he's with these animals at the end of every single day, he knows 
that he got through the end of that day himself safe and his flock safe by the grace of God, mm. right? Because if a pack of wolves comes, there's not a whole lot he can do really, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he can try to scare them away or he can, you know, like he's there to try to protect everything. But if he really got set upon, there's there's not a whole lot he can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this caretaking, there's the ch- always checking them to make sure that they're well, there's making sure they're fed, making sure they're all together, guiding them through these landscapes. Um, and, and this very sort of like organic kind of, right, I probably have this very romanticized view of what it's like <laughs> to be a shepherd, but um, whereas Cain mm-hmm. and in the work of gardening was very, it's very easy to get bigger, better, faster, more mm-hmm. mentality with gardening. And like, oh, well, if I tweak this or I do that, then I can get the carrots bigger, or I can get this, or I can get another yield out of this plant. And so it's really easy to get lost in this idea that, we're in control. You're we talking about control earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes time to make the sacrifice to come back to spiritual center, because uh, Abel's work is constantly working those spiritual muscles of thinking of others before himself and, you know, like being amongst the elements and all this other kind of stuff. And Keynes is pulling him off into this sort of ego driven, bigger, better, faster, more then it makes sense that, Cain is going to have to do more to get back to center, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, um, so that was just like, oh, okay, I get it, right? Like, and that so that that sort of like traditional women's work keeps women in alignment, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's 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 work that that sharpens spiritual muscles that puts you in this kind of Zen space where you can get those strikes of inspiration there's a lot of group work involved so you're feeling that sort of amplification of the group and things like this um and as a teacher who do you teach to (laughs) yeah those are needed (laughs) (laughs) i mean you're right you're the most of the time in the classroom is spent with the one that doesn't get it Mm -hmm. right they're the ones that need the extra help there's the one you know the ones that got it Mm-hmm. You give them an extra assignment and send them on their way and have a great conversation afterwards. But, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that's, an, that's a really interesting way to look at it, especially since in our society, usually working with the animals and traveling outside the village would be considered the male thing and staying home and tending the garden and that kind of thing would be more considered the female. It's interesting that you see it in that other other framework well and taking care of the um of the flocks is i i don't think it's that dissimilar to looking after children really well i don't think it is either but i'm it's interesting that like jesus was seen as the good shepherd and i'm thinking even of, on the navajo and stuff i think some women as well as men can watch the flocks there but there are societies like maybe ancient greece where the shepherds tended to be male men. yeah and that's really an interesting thing to think about well it's interesting it's one of the things i've been sort of rehashing in this book that I'm writing on excavating the goddess from the Abrahamic traditions, mm-hmm. right? Is because Cain and Abel are both boys, mm-hmm. but the one that seems to be favored by God because he has to make this lesser sacrifice, right? Is the one that has the the job that's going to be, have a, le- a much more sort of feminine emphasis on what it's doing, mm-hmm. right? And not the bigger, better, faster, more kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's, I've been reading this book also called, um, the alphabet versus the goddess. And mm-hmm. that kind of ties into the Buddhist book that you've been, mm-hmm. um, that you've been reading. 
um, and we'll get to that in the next segment probably. We should probably wrap up this one. Uh, we've gone on 35 minutes. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, but a lot of the great teachers, right, actually purported these very fem they were they were feminine aspects yeah right there were a lot of things that jesus said and valued and did that were certainly much more in alignment with feminine energies than they were masculine and certainly not the patriarchal mm-hmm. sort of toxic masculine paradigm of his time right mm-hmm. so um so it's one of those things that's really interesting how that how that all gets flipped on its head and because the books are aimed at the men Mm-hmm. You know, there's this like, oh, well, you know, women aren't talked about in the Bible because you suck. It's like, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, again, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, coming at it from a background of anthropology and linguistics, um, the actual Hebrew of Cain is Cain. And it's, uh, you know, remember the mark of Cain was a, like yeah. a circle on the on the forehead? Traditionally, they've established through archaeological references and whatnot that that was the mark of a blacksmith. Uh, and you notice that that God sets the mark uh, of Cain and says, you know, you will be a stranger everywhere. Well, they were the one group of people that were allowed uh, to go from tribe to tribe. Hmm. Um, because everybody needed them. It was a new technology. And it's interesting that you've got sort of the the sheep herder, the herding culture, and the farming culture. And we know even from the American West how the farmer and the rancher, you know, should be friends but aren't always. Um, and then you've got this new uh, based in civilization kind of culture, you know, metallurgy, that goes between and that can go between hmm. the two. Um, and it comes out of agriculture. And the, the other thing about agriculture uh, is bigger, better, faster, and more. But it's also territorial. Right. And territory and guarding one's territory, as opposed to being nomadic and following the herds, yeah. uh, leads to warfare. What do you need to prevail? Better weapons, metallurgy. It kind of all sort of goes together, even historically. Mm. Um and even just looking at it with masculine and feminine, I'm kind of waiting for the all-gender religions. We tend to kind of group these things. I would say, like, what we're talking about is traditional stereotypic cis male or cis female. Um, but if God really made everyone in quote-unquote his image, I prefer to use the capital it. I know that's kind of demeaning to some people, but I, we don't have another word. Um, but, like, if we are all in its image then it's all gender and you know everything in between and i think the books are written by people who are in power often and they see everything through themselves and so that's the way it gets told you know yeah the winners write history um but yeah i think it the more different ways we can look at these stories that open them up so that people can see not just themselves but people can venture into other selves and appreciate how it would be to be that self and to see the negative as the positive, the positive as the negative can't but help us advance. Yeah. Start breaking down these like false dichotomies that are such a part of this realm apparently right now. Yeah. And that I think a lot of us are hoping are breaking down to usher in the realm that's coming. You bet.
Yeah, so uh, I've been reading this book lately I got out of the library called The Big Bang, The Buddha, and the Baby Boom. And it's by Wes, quote, Scoop Nisker. <laughs> and he was called Scoop because, yes, he was a journalist. And, yes, that really is old and hackneyed, but <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but I've been like, it's been such a treat to read it as a baby boomer and as somebody who really has an affinity and off and on practices Buddhist meditation, I can't claim to be really a devotee. Well, they do call it a practice. Yeah, it is a practice, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, but he, he was much more consistent, and he was right in the center of Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, went to ashrams in India. But he has a wonderful down-to-earth humorous take on his experiences and I think some real insights into why it's the baby boomer generation that kind of latched on to a lot of this stuff and kind of gave birth to the new age and I've been thinking a lot about it because we we're kind of beleaguered now I think as a nation and maybe as a world um, by different ideologies and so ideologies that once seemed poised to sort of just be common sense for everybody are now I think openly kind of in some circles anyway, openly put down and, and whatnot. And I just thought it was really interesting. Uh, it mirrored a lot of my own spiritual progress and stuff. And he had some good reasons for it. And I thought it was cool. And you were saying that it wasn't like Catholics, not so much when he's talking about like all yeah. this flooding to the ashrams in India. Yeah. He said he found mostly um, white upper middle class Protestants and Jews, and particularly more like Reformed Jews. He himself was raised Jewish, but he said not particularly, you know, religious. Um, and he sort of felt that it was the absence of ritual and overwhelming symbology that is present in Orthodox Judaism and Catholicism. And that seems to give people comfort. It gives people anchors and points of daily practice, if they say the rosary, say, or, they, or the, the Orthodox men with the tefillin. Um, he said that he felt that the boomers literally were born out of the atomic bomb. You know, the, the boomer yeah. generation started after World War II was won by that means. And we grew up with the yes, duck and cover under the desk kind of thing. And it gave rise to a sense of insecurity uh, making us feel mortal at a much younger age than maybe previous generations might have, although there were certainly contagious diseases yeah. and things like that. If you could make it out of childhood. Yeah. I mean, when, you when were every good other... until 35, right, anyway. <laughs> every other week you were being told to duck under your desk because, you know, it could be coming. Um, that it gave us that feeling of searching for something beyond. And that for a lot of us in the the, the lesser ritualistic religions we didn't even have anything that really spoke to us that much uh, i think on the positive side of that i think that religions that are born out of reform like reform judaism or the protestant reformation uh, are already open to reform and i think it uh, perhaps it was the positive side of it was there was more open-mindedness to other symbologies um, but certainly we'd had uh, since the 1890s, we'd had kind of the East coming into the West, and he was saying that he felt that the the nuclear threat coupled with kind of this loss of feeling of, of ritual in our lives kind of led a lot of a lot of us into the Eastern faiths to begin with, and it did him. Yeah, I know. I for a long time I've thought of. Um... 
So I've always, and I know this definition is not the definition that everyone usually has, but I see, I see spirituality as a greater relationship Mm -hmm. and I see religion as a, as a daily outward practice or an outward practice. Right. Mm -hmm. So you, they're like two eyes, like you really need both of them. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've got the relationship, but there's no regularity to it, Mm -hmm. then the relationship's not going to go that far. Right. Mm -hmm. You're clearly going to get much, a much deeper relationship with someone that you're seeing more often. Yeah. Um, And anytime you're doing like ancestor, ancestor practice or these kind of things, um, you know, good teachers will tell you this is building relationship. You need to get to know them. Like, don't just make an offering and then think they're going to like jump up and come help you. Like <laughs> you, you help your friends, you help the people that are around all the time, you know? So, um, so, so we need that practice to help the relationship, right? It gives this sort of structure or discipline to it. And, um, and I also see like ritual and body-based practices as being the feminine aspect of the right it's the embodiment mm. so the the cognition and the text and the word like this is the sort of like floaty father air kind of thing mm. right and singing and dancing and ritual is the mother earth like that's what's going to ground us in time and space mm. and so um so from that perspective a lot of the reform movements actually look really really like masculine heavy right yes. it's very much about like this cognition and i'm i'm reading this book now called um the alphabet versus the goddess that was recommended to me from someone at the at the association for the study of women in mythology conference in vegas that we were both at and um the guy that wrote it like it has its problems it has deep problems <laughs> surely <laughs> there have been many many and i you know i've been listening to it I, I bought the book but then audible was having a sale and so before i went to mount shasta for the um for the solstice i went ahead and got it on audible so i'm list i'm listening to it more than i'm reading it so there's been several chapters where i've had big wincing moments <laughs> do you know what i mean like yeah, yeah not really you know and it's it's funny because he's making this argument for um uh sort of bring you know he's building this case of the way that the goddess was suppressed right mm-hmm. um and i'm sure sees himself as advocating for the goddess in this way to show like all these ways she's been buried or whatever um but it's interesting cuz his takes on particular task texts are very like traditional masculinist interpretations of mm-hmm. those texts and then saying, see what we did here. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of different ways to read that story. Um, <laughs> yeah. But those kinds of things aside, his basic, he's tying um, the alphabet because I had gotten to this place in this work that I'm doing for my book on uh, mm-hmm. excavating the goddess from the Abrahamic tradition. I got to this place where I started wondering like, is language like is written language itself propaganda Mm. because it's an inferior technology to the spoken word right and certainly when we're talking about spiritual teachings there's so much more information on the voice and because it's in different colors it's got music to it you know you can hear someone talking and things will rib off in multiple directions at the same time right um and i had noticed that in in holland when i was having the sort of spiritual crisis and breakdown and melt you know all these things Ooh. that i thought i knew in life were being ripped away from me um so there was all this spiritual awakening happening 
at the same time, there was this huge depression ch- chasm opening underneath me. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's um, the dark night of the soul. It absolutely was. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of a few that I've had, right? So, um, but then I had started seeing too how me trying to write in my journal the things that I was experiencing in meditation and my dreams and stuff was just inadequate because what what I was seeing and hearing was colorful and moving in all these dimensions at the same time and had this music behind it and right and then I'm trying to convey that in black and white moving in one direction on the page right so it was I I was struck and I would try to I would try to do things with different colors and diagrams and things like this but it's still slapped onto this two-dimensional plane Mm -hmm. right so so I saw then like how incredibly inadequate the written word is for these really cosmic spiritual experiences, right? Um, so I, in in the work for, for my book, have been wrestling, seeing this a little bit more, like why with religion in particular, would we start writing stuff down? It just doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you're not getting the same amount of information, you're not getting the emotional tutelage that you would get in an oral culture, right? That that you're making sure that somebody's emotional development is moving the way that it needs to before you expose them to the next level of text or whatever, right? Or the next story or the next. Um, and we, I think we're living in a time now where we're, we're seeing, fo- I think both sides are like, hey, wait a minute, what are you guys doing that for? <laughs> like, that was always our thing. Like, that's our understanding. And now you're doing this really weird thing with it, right? Um, because there's not, there's a process to gain, to gain that, right? Like the difference between knowledge and wisdom is how you're going to work with it. Um, which is what I see. If you're going to see an original sin, that's it, right? Like dealing with knowledge, you're not really ready for yet as opposed to disobedience, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. That's another big door. (laughs) (laughs) That's like three podcasts just there. But, um, (laughs) I have to say though, being a, a poet and a writer, I, I get it. I get uh, it. Again. Oh my god. And I'm not saying that it's equal. I'm I'm when you keep saying that inferior in some ways and yet in some ways there are things for me anyway that only poetry can capture. Um I felt that way for a long time because I dabble in all of the arts and music was my predominant one. Um and I thought if I spend time at the piano or on my guitar or singing I've got the beauty while I'm making the beauty, and I've got something beautiful immediately. Likewise with painting, you know, or dancing. But with writing, it's like, well, when you're finished, what do you wave at people? A piece of paper with, like you said, black marks on it. And you can only communicate with people who can decode those marks, you know. Uh, So I can see where you're coming from with that. And yet I'm kind of an egalitarian, like I said about a god of all genders. I think a god of all communication forms, too. Um, well, one of the things yeah. that's really interesting in the book, because it has been mm-hmm. very challenging, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and has been breaking open, helping me. I'm, I'm also seeing like hypocrisies I have about this phase that we're in right now and the things that I get alarmed by. Um, but he, he talks at length about, and I don't know whether a neuroscientist would listen to this and, and wince the same way I do with his interpretation <laughs> of some stories, but he talks about how 
Um, because it's interesting when you look at the rise of literacy involved in, in particular religions, right? Mm -hmm. As literacy rose, images declined, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It became text bound, mm -hmm. um, to the point of like, um, destroying images, right. That they had during the, I'm thinking of the Dutch word. It's not, and that's not going to help anyone. The, was it the Reformation? <laughs> yeah. They called it the Bailden Storm in Holland, which is basically the image storm. Oh, how interesting. Because people went through the churches destroying these That's true. Yeah, the statues. Reformation, they did, because they wanted to get back to the original purity kind of thing. Of, right. Yeah. Well, how similar to the Taliban is that? Right. You know? And the right. goddess is really tied up in image, right? Mm -hmm. Again, it's that embodiment kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? So image, dancing, music, like these are all ways yes. to call forth the goddess. It's all embodiment of that like divine feminine mm -hmm. energy. And um, and so when you get like the more text bound something is, the more they're relying upon the text then there is this pushing away. Mm -hmm. And he talks to, this is the part that was really challenging, um, was how text, he talks about left brain and right brain, right? So, so reading text mm -hmm. is processed in a very different part of the brain as listening and speaking talk, mm -hmm. listening and speaking words, mm -hmm. right? Um, so the, the reading text and literacy is on the same, is, is on the left side of the brain, right? So it's there with mathematics and and this idea of time being fully linear and mm -hmm. right. Whereas speaking and oration is in the same part of the brain with music and art and dancing and mm -hmm. all those kind of things, right? So he talks about how as literacy is introduced in societies, then misogyny increases. Interesting. Because it shifts our brains. It changes how we think about things. Mm -hmm. It changes how we process. It changes what we value. Yeah. Right? Um, and this idea, again, of controlling and bigger, better, faster, more becomes much more powerful and dominant. Right? Mm -hmm. So, like, the question we'd asked in the first section of, well, were, were those tasks to mean because women were doing them? Or... Does that indicate a shift in our society that we no longer value mm -hmm. those the, the things you can get from those kinds of tasks, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's the part that's been really challenging, right? Because I'm, I taught English for <laughs> 13 years. <laughs> like, I I am a total bibliophile. I mm -hmm. my writing has saved me on more than one occasion, right? My attachment to my journal is so deep, even though. I've had these struggles with it because they were inadequate to to convey the kinds of things that I was mm -hmm. coming to understand. Um, but it's it's been really fascinating. And then he just kind of goes through these different cultures and talks about the the shift, the transformation from um, from an alphabet or from a pictogrammal kind of thing to mm -hmm. an alphabet, mm -hmm. right? Um, and how that's shifting things off. And it's interesting because I, um, Jason's dad is like a huge history buff, right? So mm -hmm. he had asked me, I don't know how many years ago, why do, why does the West see like Greece and Rome as being the beginning of Western civilization? Because it's not really distinguishable from Mesopotamian culture. Like, mm -hmm. where do you draw the line? And half jokingly, I said, 
well, I think the beginning of Western civilization is is when we stepped fully into patriarchy and misogyny. Like <laughs> we went from something a little more balanced to like really shifting the scales. But again, isn't that indistinguishable from large parts of Mesopotamia? At least the biblical portions of it. Well, but that's alphabet. Yeah. But then that would push the beginnings of Western civilization further east and further back. Yeah, that's true. You know? That's true. No, and it's true because it should be like, mm-hmm. um, because obviously the Bible has been huge, whether people ascribe to that or not. Right. Yeah, oh, it's it's you know Western civilization is it is formative for Western civilization, so that's yeah. really true. But, um, but it but he does he and he talks about the Hebrews and their alphabet mm-hmm. and this formless God. Yeah, I'm thinking you know God was beyond words. Why was it Y W H W Yahweh? You know Y W H W H Y H W H. That's yeah, it. Y H W H. Yeah, got it, got it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, and I always think of poetry is like using words to move you beyond words. It moves mm. you to a space of thinking and feeling that's kind of beyond. So, what would be the difference between spoken words and written poetry? Well, having done both now um, for a while, it is interesting when you talked about the neuroscience of it. Um, because I guess coming out of the musical background or whatever, I conceive of all of my stories that I tell as like pieces of music. I'm constantly hearing them. I'm listening to myself tell them. I don't often know what I'm saying till I hear myself say it. And it's the rhythm, it's the sound, it's, you know, the volume, the pitch, all of those things. And I can't not tell a story that way. And I've had numerous people say, well, you're a storyteller, but you're also a spoken word artist. Or, you know, this really crosses more into spoken word. And they can't quite put me in a genre. And <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, really. And it's, <laughs> That's it, so unlike you. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I am on the cusp of everything, baby. Just everything. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, and I think, well, even writing poetry, I hear it. I will wake up in the morning with snatches of melody or with a phrase, and it's the phrase and it's the rhythm or the meter or whatever it is that moves moves it forward. Um, so it happens to me in both both ways. And I'm a big believer in the the medium that you use. It's like a lever. It works both directions. Um, I learned this from my husband, who's a mathematician that you can think of something like Einstein had that feeling about relativity and then it took him 10 years to find the language in math right. to put it in. Yeah. But there are times when you can get to the end of thinking, but you can look at the symbols and you can say, but what happens if I move this symbol here? And it sparks a new thought that you, it moves you beyond where you were able to think in the other medium. So I, th- like I, again, I'm that big egalitarian. I think every medium has its, its, pluses and its minuses to be binary about it um absolutely and it's one of the thing, the sort of responses that i've had to it right is this um and again that's those places where that fundamentalist conservative background yeah. comes up and the black and the white and you know all this kind of stuff like oh no that's terrible i have to get away from text so i can like you know re-access that part of my brain mm-hmm. it also helped me understand a little bit more of the how and why um, like art has been such a powerful thing for me. Mm. And for most of my life, either I could write or I could paint, but I couldn't do both. 
Interesting. So things were coming through in words or they were coming through in images. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm at this space where that's integrating a little bit more, right? Because I'm yes. working on these these writing projects right now, but I've also been churning out quite a bit of yeah. um, images lately, collage rather than painting. But um, uh, crap, where was I going with that? I'm not sure. You just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we were talking about the linear and... Ah. right before that what did you say i was talking about how for me i hear it whether i'm writing it or whether i'm speaking it and how my storytelling is spoken word and spoken word is written word so so here's the thing like wrestling with this and that sort of fundamentalist gut reaction for me of like oh i have to get away from text right um and then like okay let's bring it to the middle yeah (laughs) (laughs) and 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 like okay so how how do we bring these back together again mm-hmm. right cuz like we had sort of closed out the last segment with this idea of like right now this plane of existence is working on all these schisms and part of the illusion is that we're separate mm-hmm. right yes. and part of our spiritual work is to realize that we're not and kind of break that down a little bit um but but at the same time to recognize that there's a purpose for the sort of like ego jacket that we wear on this planet that does see these distinctions. Uh Um, But there's a lot of different mythologies that talk about new emerging worlds within the Christian tradition. Revelations is a marriage, Uh right? There's all this chaos that happens because you've got these two groups of in-laws that are coming together, you know? So it's kind of like my, my big Aramaic wedding. Like, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so, so those things that were sort of cleaved in two mm-hmm. at the beginning now need to reunite. And like, what does that look like? Exactly. To, to recognize the importance of image and dance and ritual and, right, and to not, and I think one of the things, too, that sort of, like, was really challenging, also scary about the book was the way that he talks about how text and literacy changes our, our the way our brain processes that things. That is fascinating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's like, okay, so how do we balance that then? Is it just a matter of making sure that I'm doing enough dancing and enough collage, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Is that going to be enough to like shut that monkey brain off? Is that part of why um, like sort of maintenance and cyclical work becomes that much more important because it's something to give that sort of text slash monkey brain something to do so that the more creative brain can have, Mm. Uh, at least the tiniest of windows to try to open. <laughs> well, that that's a question who can answer, right? How can you answer that? Uh, but it does seem to me that it's it's uh, once you take a direction, you've closed off the others for that time period. While yeah. you're collaging, you're not writing necessarily. While you're writing, you're not collaging. And I've always had this experience. The best place for me to write is at a live symphonic concert. Um, my right brain is processing the music and suddenly I can hear my left brain or maybe it awakens my left brain or wherever the words are coming from, they come, you know? Um, I mean, your brain is always working everywhere at all the time. I think it's kind of artificial to say we're either in one or the other brain, but 
every tradition, I'm thinking of like in the Greek and Russian Orthodox, the icon paintings, they want you to sit and paint, you know. Um, the uh, Shinto people dance. Um, so they've chosen a medium for you and they've sanctioned that medium. And that temporarily, I guess, de-emphasizes the others. What's fascinating to me is how vehement the Abrahamic tradition has been about not creating images, which, you yeah. know, in light of what you've just said, gets a whole new meaning for Doesn't me. Doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? I mean, you can see it on the one hand as, well, yeah, God is something that can't be confined within an image. And we do tend to I create idols for ourselves. So if you do make an image, it's the image we view as sacred. Right. Um, so like they want to get Islam. us away from that. But then that also gets us away from that other medium very strongly and yeah. permanently. Kind yeah. Of. And like the sort of Islamic perspective on it, I'd always heard... Um, you know, you don't make the images. Yeah, God can't be contained, but also images exclude people. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're making a representation of of one of the prophets in one certain way, then then other people can't relate to that, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so you don't want anyone. You don't want to be like making someone feel like they're outside the herd. So which you don't. Is good. Which is beautiful. The, the best of motives, right? Yeah, it's really yeah, it really really is beautiful. So. Um, but in light in light of this kind of information puts this whole different spin on it. Yeah. Um, but what's really fascinating with Islam is that that was recited. It wasn't written down until much later. Uh-huh. And um, the well, first... Well, didn't Muhammad... No, he, he was illiterate. He was illiterate, right? So he chanted <clears throat> it and someone wrote it for him? Not until... No, not until years later. Oh, my gosh. So they it's were very similar to the New Testament. They were charged to... and Right. This is one of the things to talk about, too, is that Jesus didn't want his his people writing things down either. Or at least it, it was, just wasn't time. I it mean, wasn't... It didn't get written down it, until later. <clears throat> yeah, it was... or But it was oral tradition, right? Yes, he really wanted yes. to work with an oral tradition. Same thing with Muhammad and... There was a woman that we interviewed on the show a while back. Uh, Rhonda Humwe is her name. Mm -hmm. She has done a translation of the Quran just using the oldest Arabic concordance wow. that's available. Um, and so it's this beautiful, she's pulled out all these really beautiful mystical meanings from it. Um, her work is just beautiful. And she's working on a, on a manuscript right now where the first word that was revealed to Muhammad from the angel Gabriel was Iqa, and it gets translated as read. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, why would he tell an illiterate to read? Mm -hmm. um, and people say, oh, he meant read, read nature, read, you know, which is another beautiful way to see it. Mm -hmm. But she was saying um, that actually the word Iqa has all this sort of like, and the diagram she drew looked like, like a bee cell. It's like this hexagonal, you know, um, it has all these facets and it's really a process of contemplation. Ah. It's a process of contemplation, which mm -hmm. makes so much more sense, mm -hmm. right? Than, than telling an illiterate to read. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, reading can be part of it. You read the signs and symbols mm -hmm. in nature in, you know, sort of using the world as an oracle kind of thing. Um, but but it's not text reading. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, that and 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 the the reading is just one aspect. There's this 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 five or six part process. Well, both of us having been English teachers, I have always kind of said we need more than one verb to read. Yeah. In English, because the way 
I read a philosophical treatise is not the way I read a newspaper is not the way I read a poem we yeah. need different aspects so maybe this is the same idea is the totality of what it means to receive information via yes. a channel and really absorb it yeah you know yeah, yeah absolutely that's the kind of reading that was needed there yeah to be you know, open for it yeah to be able to receive it to be able to find space for it to be able to comprehend and process it and then to be able to to put it into practice right right, right. like yeah. that's a very involved process yeah and is very different from scanning a newspaper right right <laughs> or decoding and voicing what you've decoded yeah, yeah. 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 Well, and that's a, that's a linguistic problem too that I think we need to grapple with. And I would refer uh, you to Bart Ehrman's work, who was raised fundamentalist and simply in his fundamentalist college asked, "Well, what's the oldest copy of the Bible?" And it started him down this whole road of looking at text and what do we actually have and what did it mean at the time? We can't know what it meant before the time. But um, there's a, a course I'll be possibly taking in the fall on telling stories uh, from the Bible. And the teacher is going to be talking about the oral roots. I mean, when you think of something like Song of Songs uh, or the Psalms, they were oral long before they were written. And we know from the Gilgamesh epic that they were written elsewhere long before they were written yeah, in the Old yeah. Testament. Um, and it's what I call slippage. I've heard the term used in linguistic circles um, of how a word changes its meaning. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, and that, so it's wonderful, the work that she's doing yeah. about going back at least as far as we can. It's what Bart Ehrman did, too, to see, well, what's the earliest and what can we conjecture they might have meant by that? But even when we read a simple word, there's so much slippage in communication all the time. Uh, somebody says something and we read into their tone, the length of time they took before they answered it, this, the sense of hesitancy, the body language, if, if we're face to face. And if we're in a text, those things sort of are imagined. There's certain ways to signal some of them. But you know the, the knots we can tie ourselves into with text messages when yeah. we're reduced just to text. What do you mean by that? You know, yeah, totally. why a period? Why not an exclamation point after that? You know, or why was that all in caps and all of these different things that there's so much slippage in communication that I, you know, sometimes I despair as a linguist. Can we ever really communicate anything? I, be, I become very close to Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, at that point. <laughs> I have to then do something that seems rather straightforwardly communicative. <laughs> Well, it's part of language growing too, right? Like, yes. I think again, it's tapping into that like desire for control. Mm. Um, but it's 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 part of the language growing is that the word is going to mean one thing now, and then later down the line, it means something different, right? Because right. of whatever social thing happened that shifted the meaning of that word, sometimes really abruptly and and a total about face, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and if you don't know those things and you're reading them in text then there's yes. a total different, you know, and I was really wrestling with that in a forms of fiction class that I had during my undergrad. Um, God, I loved that teacher so much. And um, she had us do graphic novels. We did a section on graphic novels. And so we had to turn in five frames um, 
or yeah, so she gave us however many frames we had to do. And the way that I ended up doing it was just having three frames. And then I had the same words for the three frames, but I changed the context. So it totally changed the meaning of the words. Mm-hmm. And I was writing for theater at the time and really grappling with the fact that directors and actors are going to interpret my words in different ways yes. and to learn to be okay with that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with my art, with my artwork, right. If someone sees something in my artwork that I didn't see there, um, that's what makes it art, mm-hmm. right? Because if they only see what I saw, then was it therapy? Was it some kind of propaganda? <laughs> was it, you know, like good art has, it, it's going to have all these different facets and there's going to be as many different ways to see it as there are eyes to see it with kind of thing. Yes. And like looking at that form and that Malcolm McLaurin sort of idea that the medium is the message. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, it, Marshall McLuhan. Marshall mean. McLuhan, thank yeah. you. Um, yeah, Malcolm McLaurin is someone else, yeah. I think. Um, <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> but um, uh, McLuhan's medium is the message. Like, same thing with the, the biblical text, right? I've often wondered if they hadn't taken it through this filter to try to make it sound like one voice, mm-hmm. and instead we had received this patchwork quilt of texts, right? Mm-hmm. Then, then you get from the form oh, there are as many ways to see this as there are eyes to see it with. Mm. And what a different message that is. And what kind of world would we be living in if that was how we had received those Christian texts? Mm -hmm. Then taking taking how many writers and and trying to translate it into one one unifying voice, right? That's so true, yeah. 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 So every every moment of our lives we're processing on innumerable channels in innumerable ways and every one of us takes a different meaning or different message at any one time. Apparently they overlap enough that we can do something like this and talk to one right. another, right? Which is, you know, which thankful, is wonderful. Which is yeah. great. <laughs> um, but ultimately, yeah, I mean it you start to get lost in in the the quarks of it you know how many kinds of quarks are there and how are we spinning these quarks no very very true you know? but i think and if we get to this place of accepting that that's okay right and you you only have to be in nature for a little while to realize that that level of diversity is what makes things healthy mm-hmm. right um and if we'd been raised in this way to be like okay well that's great and awesome and beautiful as opposed to how are we supposed to weave it all together in this one, mm-hmm. <laughs> this one unifying cord to pull through? But um, that's probably why spinning and the fates has been such an enduring archetype. Oh, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> so glad that you could join us today. And we are here to start a conversation, not be the conversation. So we would love to have you join us uh, around the digital campfire. Uh, you can come to the Facebook page, find Kitchen Table Alchemy, the group. Um, and that's a great place to connect with other people, uh, talk about what we've been talking about, also to find out where our next pop-up podcast is going to be. And Pinterest, find us on Pinterest. So that article that you were looking for that you've scrolled through and you can't find it, it's probably on the Pinterest board. So uh, go find the Kitchen Table Alchemy group over on Pinterest. 
And for the latest episodes, you can go to our website, kitchentablealchemy.com, or you can subscribe through iTunes. And that way it's downloaded automatically. You don't have to remember anything. That's that's what I like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, we've loved having you. Y'all come back now, you hear? here. <laughs>